0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Third part, third and last uh, part of the little contentment series I started a couple of weeks ago. Next week, I'm going to start a new series. We're going to go for uh, six or seven weeks, but uh, we're doing a whole, uh, next week we're going to start this whole uh, church-wide all together, you know, Wednesday night, midweek online is going to do it. Uh, Cell groups are going to be doing it. I'll be doing it in the uh, messages, but we're going to start a whole... uh, What? What's the word I'm looking for? Not unit. It's not like we're going to school, but... uh, what? what? Module. Module. There we go. Let's use module. Uh, We're going to do a church... I don't even like that word very much, but we're going to do a church thing together called Learn to Love for about a month and a half. Uh, It'll be six weeks. The reason I'm saying about is there's one gap in there because of Prayer Summit. But I'm going to start the Learn to Love message series next uh, weekend, Sunday. But uh, today I want to finish our series, our little three-part mini-series on contentment. And I want to go back to, as we have in all three of these messages, I want to go back to and start with uh, Philippians chapter 4. And Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, they say this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So uh, Paul gives us a strategy for how to deal with anxiety, for how to deal with anxiety and get to a place of contentment. His strategy is uh, prayer and thanksgiving. Okay, that's what Paul does. That's what Paul did. That's what Paul is writing about this when Paul was anxious Uh, When Paul was struggling to get to that place of peace and contentment, what did he do? He went to prayer. He went to thanksgiving. And of course, that's what we should do as well. What a gift prayer is that we can pray when we're feeling anxious. Now, of course, um, if only it was that easy, right? If only it was that easy, right? I mean, we know that prayer is a gift. Uh, We know this passage, this famous passage. We know we're supposed to pray when we're anxious, um and yet isn't it true that so often we go to prayer and at the end of it we still have our anxieties. I mean again it, it so we know Paul is on to something. Paul's telling, I mean it's 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 inspired word of God. We know this is important to know. We know we should pray when we're anxious, but somehow uh for some of us when we pray our anxiety doesn't go away. And I think part of that—I think there's probably many reasons why that is true—but uh, I think part of that might be tied in for some of us with having wrong expectations, wrong expectations about life, and wrong expectations about prayer. I think a lot of us as Christians have wrong expectations both about life and about prayer. And I'm going to start with wrong expectations about life. I uh, I feel like there's a new American dream out there. Uh, You know that phrase, the American dream. And, you know, I think yesterday's generation or the older generations, I think uh, their American dream was to have a nice house, you know, the white picket fence, uh, a nice vehicle or two and some nice vacations. That was sort of yesterday's generation desired this, this, they were coming from having nothing. And so the American dream for them was to have something, was to be able to prosper materially, to have the nice house, to have the nice vehicles, to go on vacation and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think though that, that, that the American dream has changed and it has changed not just for a culture. I think it's changed for us as Christians. And I think today's generation doesn't so much aspire to the nice I mean, they want nice things as well. I think every generation wants nice things. But I think today's generation, I don't think they would say that they aspire to a nice house and a nice vehicle and those sorts of things. I would say that there's a new American dream out there. And I think the new American dream for a lot of people is uh, this idea that I want to do, it has more to do with work. I think the new American dream is, I want to have a job that tailors to my unique abilities and talents, that I can make a difference in the world, you know, that I can be socially responsible, that I can have a, have a job where I can get out my, you know, have my creative outlook or outlet, sorry, and and uniqueness, and I can, you know, I can drink my fair trade coffee out of my recyclable cup, all of which are wonderful things, uh, but I can do this job that is unique to me and that makes a difference in the world, and I think that's, for many people in our culture and for Christians, I think that's kind of the new American dream. Now, when I say that, I don't say that as an insult, I don't think those are bad things to want. In fact, I think they're good things to want. I think it's a great thing to want to use your life to make a difference in the world. I think it's a great thing to want to use your, your talents and abilities if you're a Christian for God. If you're not a Christian, even just to make the world a better place, I think those are great desires. So I don't, I don't think, you know, yesterday's American dream was a bad dream. I don't think today's American dream is in and of itself uh, a bad thing. Okay, but I do think that when you buy into this dream, that this dream is actually a right, that it will impact your ability to be content. That's what I'm talking. about. I'm not talking about are these bad things to want? Is it a bad thing to want to change the world? Is it a bad thing to want to have a job that ties into your unique creative abilities and talents and all this sort of stuff? Not bad at all. Um, But is it a right? Is it something we can expect? And is it something where if we don't achieve that, that then we should feel in our lives unfulfilled and a lack of contentment? And I think if we go back to the Bible, I want to show you a couple of stories now. I think even though it's okay to desire, you know, to have meaningful work and to use my gifts and abilities to do something to change the world, Uh, even though I think it's fine to want those things, I think it is not reality to expect that every human being will be able to do that. And I think it's the root of a lot of lack of contentment with a lot of Christians. And so if we go and look at this biblically, I wanna look biblically and historically a little bit at what have human beings generally experienced in terms of these dreams, okay? Um, let's, uh, let's start with, uh, the book of Exodus and the children of Israel and let's see what kind of lives, you know, what many Israelites, what they experienced for their lives and did they experience either of the American dreams, either the nice house, the nice vehicles, the nice vacations, or getting to do meaningful, wonderful, unique, creative work that exactly matched their talents and abilities. Well, uh, we read in Exodus chapter one, starting in verse eight, let's read this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Next verse, verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, store cities, Python and Ramses. So I want you just to think about this for a moment. Um, you have got a number of generations, depending on how you count, you know, the 430 years that uh, Exodus 12 talks about, you have a number of generations or several generations of Israelites who spent their whole lives in slavery. They were born into slavery, they grew up and spent their entire lives in slavery, and then they died, okay? So I want you to think about that, in terms of our cultural expectation and sometimes our Christian expectation that it is a right, almost a right, not that it's a bad thing to want, but it is almost a right that I will get to do a job that is meaningful, that I love, that gets to use my abilities and talents uniquely. None of these people ever even got to think that. None of these people even ever got to have that hope of ever doing a job like that or to own their own house or the white picket fence generations of these people were born into, lived, and died in slavery. And so the question I'm asking as I go through this biblically is, is this a right that every human being can absolutely expect? And if I don't get it, I can't be content? Uh, or is can we be content with much less? Can we be content with a mundane life and with menial work? Well, let's keep going. So verse 13 So they, that's the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. These these people spent entire lives under ruthless slave labor. Verse 14. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, I want you to think about this again. This was not just a season in their life. It's not like these Israelites went through a month that was really difficult. Oh, that was a tough season in my life. It wasn't like they went through a a year or even two years where, whoo, I'm glad I got through that. That was a tough season in my life. Their entire life was filled with tough, menial, bored, you know, hard labor. They did not get to use their unique talents and abilities for God, really, ever. You know, they got home at night and were exhausted and went to bed. Maybe, you know, some of them who had musical abilities, no doubt they sang some songs or various things when they were together. But very few of them ever got to be unique for God or change the world. And yet they lived. And God allowed them to go through that kind of a life. And then what happened? Then Moses comes along and, uh, and God says, I have heard the cries of my people. And, uh, and so I'm going to save them out of Egypt. I'm going to save them out of this hard slavery. So Moses comes along. We have all the plagues. And, uh, and then you're like, yes. So now they get rescued out of Egypt. Now they get to live the American dream. Now they're all going to have the nice house. They're all going to get to do meaningful work that they love. And life won't be difficult or mundane or any of these sorts of things. And no, they get rescued from Egypt. And then what does a whole generation do? 40 years in the what? In the wilderness. That's an, again, it's an entire lifetime. We're not talking about a season. We're not talking about a month. We're not talking about a year of, I really question my purpose in life. They wandered around the desert for their entire lifetime after they got out of Egypt. Look at this in, in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, in light of sort of, you know, what I'm calling sort of the American dream or the the cultural dream, which which is a fine thing to want, to want meaningful work to want to provide for your family, to want to use your gifts and abilities, all none of that is bad, none of that is sinful. In fact, I, th- it, I think ultimately it's God-given. The only thing I'm talking about here is the expectation that I must have this in order to be content. Um, I want you to think in light of that dream, I want you to think about what does 40 years wandering around in a wilderness look like in terms of your creative outlets, in terms of your... Talents and abilities what does that look like? So you get up you live in a tent in the desert with your family you get up What do you do this you do the same thing every day? You do some basic chores you feed the animals you stitch up some clothes you make some food Uh, You're moving every few weeks or a couple of weeks sometimes maybe a couple of months at a time, but it's nomadic. You're not farmers you're not you're not growing crops you're in the wilderness and so you know you stitch together tents You look around, you're in a desert. uh, You admire the scenery, which never changes. And you draw water and you feed animals and then you go to bed at night exhausted and hot and dry. And you repeat that day after day after day. And every few weeks, you pack up the tents, you walk a long way, you set it up, and then you do it again. And you spend your entire life doing that. There are no vacations There are no, uh, there's no different phases or changes of career. Uh, This is just how you live, and then this is how you die. And somehow in that, God allowed those people to do it, and not just the Israelites in the wilderness. I mean, I've just given you a couple stories. We could go through all kinds of Bible stories. But if we just look through history, okay? If we just look through history, if we think about, for those of you who have Mennonite last names, here in Southeast Manitoba, like I do, Dirksen. Uh, those of you who have, you know, Mennonite ancestors coming out of Russia. Or, you know, you might be watching this, this uh, live stream from somewhere else. Because anywhere else in Canada or around the world. Uh, wherever your ancestors came from. But I look back at my Mennonite ancestors coming out of Russia. They lived very extremely difficult lives. Where they worked and worked and worked and worked. And then worked some more. And desperately tried to come to Canada and then work some more, and then they died. They did many, many, many years of hard labor. And, you know, a lot of... uh, I'm reading a book right now about, uh, you know, uh, a family that grew up in the 1930s and 40s uh, Russia. And, you know, there was no conversation about, you know, what are you going to do for your career? How are you going to make a difference in the world? Their conversations revolved around, did we gather enough food this summer? Did we work hard enough in the garden while also shoveling coal at the factory uh, to gather enough food to help us survive the winter, us and the kids? This is how they lived. And God has allowed tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions over history, to live lives like this, with no hope of the American dream of a nice house, with no hope of the American dream of a meaningful, fulfilling job, even though those are really wonderful things, and those of us who can have them, that's really amazing. But it just makes me think, what does this biblical reality and what does this historical reality tell us about God and about our expectations? What is the historical reality that most human beings who have lived throughout history have spent their whole lives doing, you know, menial work? By the way, I have, that's my word of the weekend this, this weekend, menial. I'm going to show you a dictionary definition in a little bit later in this message, but you can look it up already on your phones if you don't understand what that is. But uh, what does that tell us about life and about God and about our expectations that the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived uh, spent their entire lives doing menial work just trying to survive. What does that tell us about God? And what does that tell us about contentment? Uh, what it tells me, and when I look at Paul's life, when I look at the scripture, what it tells me is that it must be possible to find fulfillment, joy, peace, and contentment in a life that is very mundane, or in a life where I have none of the trappings of the American dream or a meaningful life job in the sense that we sometimes think of it as meaningful today well we look at what paul says in first timothy chapter six and he says this but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought so there's contentment again there's paul he's big on contentment for but godliness with contentment is great gain for, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world now whoa right there we have an expectation We're seeing an expectation of Paul's, okay? And it's maybe different. Like I said at the beginning of this message, we looked at Paul's uh, passage in Philippians, and he said that you should be able to let go of your anxieties in prayer. But then I said, well, but there's a problem because many Christians go into prayer and they still have their anxieties at the end of the prayer. So what's going on there? Well, I think one of the issues is expectations. If you have wrong expectations, And you expect that life is going to turn out a certain way. uh, And then it doesn't turn out that way. And you keep praying that it will turn out that way. And then it doesn't turn out that way. uh, That can be very, uh, you know, that can be painful for people. Because the expectations are off. I want you to notice Paul has an expectation here. He says, here's his expectation. We brought nothing in and we get to take nothing out. If that's your expectation of life, it's going to be a lot easier for you to be content. And then look what he says next. He says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, that is a lot lower bar to clear for contentment. Paul had a lower bar. He, 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 he said, I, I, I don't need, you know, this uh, fulfilling work and make it something that ties in, you know, a career that ties into my unique abilities and talents. As amazing as that is and as wonderful as that is, it's not bad to desire those things or to have those things, but he's like, I don't need that to be fulfilled. In fact, Paul spent most of his life, like we look at the mission stuff, and we go, oh yeah, he was this great minister. Actually, most of his life was spent in hard labor. Uh, he was a tent maker by trade, and that's how he provided for himself to do ministry, and then he did ministry, you know, after a day work, long day's work. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and then we'll look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, 8. In 1 Corinthians 4, it says this, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Okay? So again, his expectations are a bit lower than ours in terms of what God, he expects God has to provide for him. Okay? Um, and then he says, And we labor working with our hands. He was a tent maker. Okay? says so this is 1 Corinthians 4. He is spending his days in hard labor, working with his hands. This is not a job where, you know, at the end of the day, you just necessarily feel good about yourself. And, oh, I had so much fun today, and I get along with the... Like, I love my job at church. It's way easier than what Paul had. Okay, he, he's a tent maker. He labors, working with his hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Um, he worked all day, eking out a living, so that he could continue to minister. That was his reality. And he was able to be content in that. And then it says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 8. Uh, He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. So there's that again. I talked about that two weeks ago. That discipleship, being discipled, part of that is we look at what the saints in Scripture did and then we we imitate them. Paul's saying that again. And this time, though, he's saying it with regards to contentment and hard work. So he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. So this is something also that we are to emulate Paul in. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So Paul says it's actually an important thing as believers. He actually goes on to say uh, that it is better to give than to receive. One One of the reasons it's important to work is because we want to be givers as Christians, not just receivers. Now, of course, I know all the caveats... Uh, you know, some people can't, there's reasons why people can't work or, and especially in a season like now with COVID and stuff, people are getting laid off. They can't work. So this isn't about guilt. If you can't work or you have some kind of, you know, physical thing or mental thing that you can't work. It's not about that. If you can't work, you can't work and that's fine. But, But what I'm saying is I think there's a lot of people out there and I think Christians sometimes get into this as well. where where they're questioning their purpose and they're looking for fulfillment in life and they don't like their job and they feel like, well, I just don't have a fulfilling job. I just don't have a meaning... I don't have meaningful work. I'm looking for this this career to give me fulfillment. If you're looking for fulfillment in a career, you're looking in the wrong spot. If you're looking for fulfillment in using your gifts and abilities, even though that's a wonderful thing, you're looking in the wrong spot. Fulfillment... we have to be able to find fulfillment. We can find, yes, there's, it can be satisfying to use your gifts and abilities. It can be satisfying to have a good job. But fulfillment has to come from something deeper and more basic than just getting to use my gifts and abilities or having a wonderful, jo- meaningful job. By the way, word of the weekend, uh, menial. I've used that word like 200 times. So maybe some of you young people don't know what, what that is. Or maybe you young people actually do know. And maybe some of you old people don't know. Okay? But menial, when I keep talking about You know, biblically and historically, many people have lived and died their whole lives spent in menial labor. I mean, they have spent their entire lives doing some job that did not require much skill and that lacks prestige. Okay? That is the majority of human beings who have ever lived. And God has allowed human beings to live like that and to work, spend their entire lives working jobs like that. So obviously, it must be possible for us to be content and fulfilled in That. Now, someone might say, Are you saying that I don't like the picture of God that you're painting? Like, uh, are you saying that that's God's will for our lives, that we all just work horrible jobs and work is just this terrible thing and then we make it through these brutal lives and then we die? No, I'm not saying that was ultimately God's plan or that that's God's heart. Uh, The Bible actually tells us that work got broken, okay? Uh, you know the first three chapters of Genesis. We the story is, it's sin. Uh, God made this wonderful creation, and then sin came in and broke things. And if you look at the curse in Genesis three, actually part of the curse, had, when when God talks to Adam, is it talks about toil. And so there's something about the brokenness of our world now, that that work for many people is not an enjoyable thing, and work often doesn't match up with our gifts or abilities, and work. Can, has in many cases in history and even today in various places in the world been a brutal thing that was very hard on people. Okay? So it's not that God, it's not that this was God's design all along or that God just loves it when people have to work hard and not get to use their gifts or abilities. It's not that God loves that. It's just that this is the reality of what we can expect in a broken world. It's the reality. Okay? So we need to set our expectations somewhere so that we can still find contentment and joy and fulfillment in this life anyway. And uh, Romans 8, uh, and I'm going to read a chunk of this passage here in Romans 8. But Romans 8 is really clear, just as the rest of the Bible is, that the world is broken right now. It really is broken. And we as Christians are not exempt from experiencing that suffering and that brokenness. We just are not exempt. We, the world is broken. We share in that brokenness. We experience that brokenness. So Paul says this, Romans 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul has an expectation that life in this broken world will be hard. That's his expectation. And if you don't have that expectation, and even if you just pay lip service to that expectation, you're going to lose your contentment whenever life is hard. And I see this happen with Christians way too often, then they're mad at God. Why would God let me go through this? Why would God not take this away from me? Why would God let me work at this job and not give me a new job? or blah, 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 blah All this sort of stuff. And I totally get the feeling you're, you're suffering. But I see often it turns to this little turn and then it's bitterness instead of contentment. And that always comes from a wrong expectation. Because you expected that I thought God promised to make my life easy. I thought pro- God promised to give me a fulfilling life. But he actually doesn't promise. To, he, what he promises is that you can find fulfillment in him, not that he's going to make your circumstances fulfilling. So Paul says, I, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our hope is not in the now. Our hope is in the future. Okay? That's, that's the important thing. Okay? Um, and uh, and you can see that there the difference there that we have something to look forward to our hope is in in the glory that is to come. But then verse twenty, uh, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So for the creation was subjected to futility. So this is because of sin. This is what this is the storyline of the Bible. God didn't make the world um, to be like this. This wasn't his loving heart is not. This, but sin and evil have broken the world. And so everything is broken. Our bodies are broken. And as a result of that, we, we, there's sickness and disease and death. And Jesus is going to rescue us from that someday. Uh, you know, government systems are broken. Family systems are broken. And work is broken. Work is broken. So many people end up with work as a hard you know, thing that they go through life having to do this job that they, that they don't find fulfillment in. And God doesn't promise to take us out of that. For the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So, I mean, we see this. Just read the news. I mean, the COVID is an example of it. But we have pandemics. We have droughts. We have storms. We have war. The creation itself is groaning. It's groaning. Um, And then verse 23, but not only the creation, but we ourselves. So we as Christians. So I know some Christians, you know, many of you don't even have a prosperity theology. Because there's that theology out there too, where some people think Christians don't have to experience the brokenness of this world. But what I found is there's lots of Christians that would tell you, no, no, I'm not into prosperity theology. I don't believe that. But the moment bad things happen to them, they're mad at God. And ultimately, that comes from prosperity-like expectations. Paul's expectations here are that creation is groaning, creation is suffering, and we are suffering with it. That's, That's what Paul's expectation is. The world's broken. Why would I get mad at God when I experience life to be hard? Because life is hard. So in that hardness... We want to push into Jesus and find contentment and peace in that. But our expectations have to be right, first of all. Verse 24, for in this hope, we are saved. So we're actually, our salvation, uh, our hope, and our contentment, and our peace, and our joy, comes not from hoping that this life is all going to turn out right. It comes from continually reminding ourselves, actually, this life might be very hard. The entire, my entire life, for many human beings, your, their entire life will be hard. Here in the West, many of us uh, have been blessed not to have to live very hard lives. But for many human beings, and even for some of us in the West, we, we, we're, that's just, we're going to live a hard life. But Paul says, in this hope, we're hoping for something we don't see. Our hope is, after death, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on earth. And our hope is that in that kingdom, that's where our hope is, then we're going to live this amazing life without pain, without brokenness, where work will be meaningful and wonderful and all those sorts of things. So when we realize that this world is broken and that we as believers aren't exempted from experiencing and living that brokenness, we will have to realize that there will be many times in our lives when we're going to have to let go of things. There's going to be times in our lives when we're going to have to let go of dreams. It's just a fact that prayer is not a magic way for you to fulfill all your dreams. Not in this broken world. There will be times when you have to let go of desires. There will be times when you have to let go of things you really enjoy doing or had hoped to do. There will be times when you will have to let go of opportunities. And in those times, we're going to have to learn like Paul to find contentment just in being alive and loving the people around us and loving Jesus and being loved by Him. Now, I know there's a, a bit of an ob- objection. And, and it comes from, you know, messages that often get preached. And messages that I've preached. Where, you know, preachers, we, we love to preach. Well, first of all, we love to raise up armies of volunteers. And, uh, and so in our zeal to raise up the armies of volunteers, which is so awesome. We, in, in our church, you guys are so uh, generous in volunteering, which is amazing. But oftentimes as pastors, what we do is we come in and we say, look, you all have gifts and abilities and talents, and you need to use them for God. And that is all true. That is 100% true. It's amazing. It's a wonderful message, and it is in the Bible. Uh, However, when that expectation turns into, uh, I expect that I'm absolutely going to get to do meaningful things for God with my talents and abilities in ways that will make me feel good, when that is an expectation and I can't be content if I don't have it, then we've gone beyond. You say, well, God has given me these talents and abilities. What a waste if I never get to use them for God. It's not a waste. You weren't made just for this life. I'll tell you something. We are going to work in heaven. I know it's depressing for some of you because you can't imagine work being good. But we are going to work in heaven. We are not going to sit around doing nothing. Boredom. We were not made for boredom. Okay? We will rest. We will play. We will worship. But we will work, you know, when Jesus returns and in his kingdom. And in that kingdom, we are going to build and create and invent and bake and write plays and make uh, movies and tell jokes and... And, you know, invent new games and competitions and all these things we're going to do because that's all part of being human and the way we reflect God's image. So in eternity, there's no question. You are unique. You do have unique talents and abilities and you will get to use them for God. And hopefully you will get opportunities in this lifetime as well. And that will be that will be very satisfying and that will be very fun and that will be very wonderful. But if you are in a season or in a life where you feel like you're not getting to do that, you can be content anyway. You can be content anyway. Instead of being disappointed with your life, instead of being discouraged with the life you've got, embrace the life you've got. Embrace where God has you. Don't waste any more time on regret, Don't waste time on disappointment. You get to live life for eternity again after death anyway. Make the most of this the life that you have. Your primary purpose in this life, I'm going to put this up there. Your primary purpose in this life, I've kept saying this in this series, is love God, love people, be discipled, make disciples. That's every one of us, our primary uh, purpose in life. Love God, love people, and be discipled. You can do that in the most menial way work. You can do that in the most mundane life. And then consider it a bonus if you get to use your talents and abilities for God. Consider it a bonus if you get to have a job you love and do meaningful work for the Lord. That's all bonus, but our purpose has to be bigger than that. Now, the question is, how do I keep this mentality day to day, right? So, okay, I get it. You keep hammering this message home in this series on contentment, that we can be content With a bare-bones life. You know, Paul says, with food and clothing, I can be content. I can find fulfillment in a bare-bones life. I can find fulfillment in a life where really all I'm doing is just trying to survive. I can find fulfillment and love people in that life. Okay? But now the question is, how do I keep this contentment mentality day-to-day in a life like that? And this is where we go back to Paul in Philippians 4. And he says, uh, the the key strategy is prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So the key is we're going to have to pray. Now, it's going to have to be the right kind of prayer. Okay? Just because you call something prayer doesn't mean you worry. And that's what I talked about at the beginning of this message. Just because you call something prayer doesn't mean uh, that at the end of it, your worry is going to be gone. Lots of us, all of us at some times, and some of us, you know, a lot of the time, You take your request to God. Oh, God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Oh, God, help me. And then at the end of it, amen. Oh, I still feel terrible. Okay? Um, And by the way, God has so much grace and mercy for all of us. You don't have to pray right in order for him to answer your prayers. But if you want to have peace and contentment, just know this. Often I hear Christians praying, God, often. And I've done this as well. God, please take away my anxiety. And you know what I think God says to that? He's like, child, come to me and let me help you let go of your anxiety. God's not just going to take away your anxiety. He's not just going to take away your lack of contentment. He's not just going to take away your bitterness. He wants you to come to him and let. you have to let those things go. As long as you're holding on to them, he's not going to take them from you. So it's learning that prayer is not just about going to God and And telling him, all my problems, yes, tell him your problems, that's awesome. But then it's, prayer is about us not just telling him our problems, it's about leaving our problems with him. That's the important thing. We need to learn to not just take our worries to God, but let go of our worries and leave them there with God. Prayer is not just about getting our situations changed. That's so important. Oftentimes, prayer is about us coming to peace with God's goodness in our situations. And if if you don't ever learn that shift in prayer, then a lot of your prayer times are going to end in anxiety, just like they started. Yes, God changes situations. I love when He does that. But lots of times, He wants us to find His goodness in the situation and to rest in Him in the situation and to find contentment and gratitude in this situation. So what are the components of this kind of contented prayer? Uh, What I like to call letting go prayer, not just, not that, not just, you know, asking God to change everything in my life, even though I do that, but I start by telling him what I need and then I don't leave before I've just let go. It's letting go prayer. So a couple of things, I don't have much time here, so we'll just kind of zip through these. Um, Number one. One of the components of letting go in prayer is part of what you're doing in prayer is not just talking to God about your worries. Part of prayer is practicing being quiet with God. Because trust is a quiet emotion, not a busy emotion. I know tons of Christians that are like, oh, I just wish I could trust God. As long as you're revving like this. I mean, it's a physiological reality. As long as you're revving, "Ah, busy, 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 ah, anxious. You can't trust at the same time as you're revving and anxious. So part of prayer is getting out of that anxious cycle and being quiet with God. Look what it says, David, and I could show you other verses, but Psalm 131 verse 2, David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Notice he does not say, God has calmed and quieted my soul. This isn't magic. He's not saying, oh, God, thank you for quieting my soul. God says, no, 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 child, come to me and quiet your soul. It's something we have to practice. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The picture here is of David being this small child nestled into his mother, like a a weaned child with his mother. So he's nestled into God. He's trusting. Now let me ask you something, um, because this has a lot to do with our picture of God as well. One of the reasons it's hard for us to trust God is because we don't trust God. Isn't that profound? Like that is profound. One of the reasons we have a hard time trusting God is because we don't trust God. We go to him with prayer, but we're worried he doesn't really care about us. He doesn't really care about taking care of his issues. So I go to prayer and I say, God, change this, change this, change this. And then I leave and I'm still worried because I'm like, oh, I don't know if he's going to take care of this situation. Does a small child, you know, a little baby that's resting in its mother's arms, does it worry, oh, I wonder if my mom's going to take care of my needs? No. And would it ever cross a good mother? Would a good mother ever not take care of her child's needs? a a, a little baby in a mother's arms can fully trust that their mom is going to look after them. David is able to quiet his soul like a weaned child with his mother because he trusts that God cares about the things he cares about. So he can leave them with God in prayer. I can leave this with you in prayer, God, because I know you care about me. And even if you don't answer it exactly the way I'm asking you to answer it, I know you're going to take care of me, like a wean child with mother. But you have to be able to stop. So part of prayer is not just, ah, God, it's, I have stilled and quieted my soul. God, I'm trusting you. That's a practice. We have to practice quieting ourselves. Now, there's different ways people quiet. I've talked about that many times before. You know, uh, some people do it through listening to music. Some people might do it by going for a walk in nature. I do it by sitting in my comfy Ikea chair downstairs. I just have my feet flat on the floor. I have my coffee in hand. In the first 5, 10, sometimes 15 minutes of my devotions, they're like some of my favorite moments of the day. Before I do anything in my devotions, I just sit there with God. And I'm just quiet. And I enjoy being quiet. Sometimes I let my mind wander. Sometimes I thank God for good things in my life. I don't force it during those initial moments of the day. I just am quiet with God. And I just trust him because he's good. So important. Then the second thing that goes with this letting go prayer. It's not worried prayer. It's letting go prayer. Is to practice seeing your emotions rather than being your emotions. And uh, there's so many cool Psalms. But uh, David prays this in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. This is the part of your prayer time when you do a check. You've quieted yourself and you're trusting God. And now you just do a check. Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling angry? Am I feeling bitter? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. Like, what, what's going on inside of me? And something that I have found so super helpful uh, over the, you know, the past months is uh, I like to picture myself sometimes in in a boat with Jesus and I'm on a lake and the lake is my mind. The lake is my, is my emotions. And if I'm feeling anxious then, or if I'm feeling angry or if I'm feeling whatever, worry or something, then I see my emotions as these waves that are rocking my boat. Now, the important thing about seeing your emotions, okay? And this is, that's what David is doing here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He's looking inside of himself. What's going on inside of me? Know my thoughts, okay? The beauty of when you see what's going on inside of you is it helps to separate you a little bit from being those emotions. I think too often... We just go to prayer. We tell God all of our worries, and then we ah, uh, and then we're still worried. And then we go about our day. And if you're feeling anxious, but you haven't stopped to take note that you're feeling anxious, you're going to act out of that anxiety all day long. You're going to snap at people out of anxiety. You're going to make decisions out of anxiety. You're going to act. You're going to be your anxiety. In letting go prayer, when we we use prayer to let go and we examine our heart and we see the anxiety, seeing is the opportunity to distance ourselves from being. We don't need to be defined by our anxiety. And so this is the place in prayer. And I will often, on my white, comfortable Ikea chair, when I see worries or fears or things going on inside of me, I lift up my request to God and then I go, I don't have to repeat myself to you a thousand times today, God, because you actually care about me. I can bring you this request and I'll often close my fist and then I'll just sit there in my chair and I will just let it go to God. So now, Lord, I'm letting this request be in your hands. It's in your hands. I've been worried about it. I've been concerned about it. But I need to go on my day, about my day now, and I am taking hold of peace and contentment, just like your word says. So I am now going to leave. For the rest of this day, I'm going to leave this worry with you. I'm going to leave this prayer request with you. And I'm trusting you. And I'm now, I've seen my emotions, so I don't need to be them. And now I let them go, and I let my request go to God. And he can then take care of me. Well, um, let's take two minutes, and just reflect a little bit. And after this reflection time, uh, we've got a video for you from Jerry and Dalia in uh, Paraguay, which is going to be wonderful to see. But let's take two minutes now at the end of this message, and uh, let's take this time to just reflect. Is there one thing God wants you to take from this message? Is there something you need to let go of right now to God? Is there a worry that's plaguing you right now? Let's just take two minutes, reflect, and say, Holy Spirit, What are you speaking to us today? Well, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, everybody from our Southland family here in the southeast in this area, and then people from all over Canada and wherever else you might be tuning in online. That's the crazy thing about online churches. Uh, you can be anywhere in the world. So if you're wherever you're joining us from, uh, we just pray the peace of Jesus and the grace of Jesus on you. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204 326 or email prayer at com. Once again, our phone number is 204 326 9020 and the email address is prayer at com.